I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today on the pod, we are lifting the lid on policymaking in the world's largest political system. We'll be hearing about how on earth you make policy for a country of 1.3 billion people. In China, if you're a minister, there's a lot of other people like you and you're not very important. Why even Xi Jinping has to walk a fine line. If you're the ruler and you put your name to something and you sign on the dotted line, what happens if it goes wrong? What other countries could learn from China's style of policymaking? They can really deal well with external experts while at the same point keeping in the back of their mind, what do I want to get out of this? How do I change this? And why China's impressive policy achievements might be taken with a grain of salt. What about the whole totality of someone's experience? You can grow at 11% per annum, great, and you, you can't drink the water. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Today on the pod, we are taking a look at policymaking in the largest and possibly most complex political system in the world. China, as everyone knows, is a country of big numbers. Not only does it boast the world's largest population, but it also has the world's biggest political party overseeing an enormous bureaucracy. In fact, it's been estimated that if the Chinese public service was its own country, it would be almost twice the size of Australia. Yet, despite its enormous size and the challenges of running a country of 1.3 billion people, China has been noted for the incredible speed at which it can, sometimes at least, roll out big policy reforms. Whether it's economic liberalisation, lifting 600 million people out of poverty in 30 years, or a countrywide healthcare system being rolled out in just two, China's policy process can appear from the outside to have a few things going for it. So is China's system an efficient policymaking machine, or a sprawling mess of bureaucracy, or perhaps both at the same time or somewhere in between? Helping us answer these questions is Dr. Ryan Manuel. Ryan is a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian Centre on China and the World at the Australian National University. He was formerly a political risk analyst, a management consultant with the Boston Consulting Group, and a senior China analyst with the Australian government. Policy Forum's Nikki Lovegrove caught up with Ryan earlier. Ryan Manuel, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Ryan, you do a lot of work on China's political system, which seems to me just to be an incredibly complex thing to study. Mm. Um, we're talking about roughly 90 million party me- communist party members, and that's you know if we're talking about size of a country, that would be something like the 14th or 15th largest country on the planet. Um, We're also talking about about 40 million public servants in a vast bureaucracy. Could you paint a picture for us? How on earth does this system work? Slowly, with great difficulty. Mm. Um, It works in a very interesting way, which is that they, they have different ways of doing things from what we normally think about. So there's a, a normal normal in, in air quotations there, but there's a, a system of government that's very 
understandable to us who who you know come from the Western system of government or have worked in government or interested in in, in policy, and then there's a party, um, and so they. The way the system works is by, in essence, they try and put those two things together into one giant organism. And, and they have different ways of doing that. And the two big ways of doing that is that you try and, like, again, generalizing slightly, you try and control all the party members using party things. So that would be like if everyone in the public service was a member of the, the Liberal Party, and then the Liberal Party made them pay their Liberal Party dues and told them what they had to do as members of the Liberal Party. And then every day they also went to work in the Ministry of Transport, so well, environment. And that would be their... They are also public servants. And so you have this really unusual mix of rules that have to allow that to happen. Um, so how it works, in essence, is by, by taking something that we think of as private and something we think of as public and then merging them into this unusual entity... And then, of course, adding some some very, very large numbers, making, you know, 90 million. So if the Liberal Party had 90 million members... They'd be um, very happy. I'm sure they would probably not be unimpressed. <laughs> um, paperwork nightmare, though. Yeah. Uh, and then they somehow all managed to squeeze half of them into jobs in the public service. Uh, you would get somewhere near and put it into a country which is the world's most populous and a landmass that spans a good chunk of the globe... And you get some idea of, of, of how this system is it's meant to work. Um, the other part, of course, of how it's meant to work is it was made in 1949 for a world in 1949 where you know, China didn't have even a foreign policy, really. You know, it was a party, and so there was no government. And then 35-odd years ago, you suddenly have to act as if you're a member of the international community. You have to deal with climate change. You have mm. to deal with... <laughs> all these problems that, that we find really hard dealing with our own policy making. But you have to use it you have to deal with them all using all the old systems from back in nineteen forty nine. So again, it's it's sort of like like a tram in Canberra that we're trying to put in right now where it's late, you know, Walter Burley Griffin's vision from nineteen eleven yeah. and then we're trying to do it in, in twenty sixteen. Try doing that for ninety million people and you, you I don't envy the the heads of the Chinese Communist Party, let me put it that way. And so you drew a comparison there with, um, you know, the Liberal Party in Australia. Is there, are there any useful comparisons that you can make between China's system and, you know, traditional Western systems government, or is it just, you know, way too different? No, because, I mean, they're, they're face, firstly, they're facing the same problems. I mean, you know, that's, that's the first thing we need to understand. Like, problems of governance aren't specific by political sort of class or, or, or creed or, or system. They're facing a lot of issues that we try and grapple with um so in that sense you know you can put yourself in their shoes i think quite easily like understanding where they're coming from quite easily uh the part where there are less parallels are systems like ministerial systems you know and here we have a ministry and and we sort of know how that functions and a british system is a bit different from an australian system is a bit different from an american system but you know if you're if you're a minister you're still pretty important in china if you're a minister there's a lot of other people like you and you're not very important and um, that, I think, is probably the hardest thing to get into people's heads. Like, whether we like it or not, every time we look at China, we sort of have these implicit understandings of what a government is and what a system is. And so when we see a title... We think it's important. Exactly. Or not necessarily even important, but we just, we just map. Yeah. You know, we map our system onto their system. And um, 
you know, one imagines they might, well, I don't think they do the same for us. This is the other interesting thing. I think they really get our system very well. Um, but uh, and my old boss, um, Jeremy Barmay, once said, you know, we, we were trying for a while to bring these Chinese five-year planners over to Australia and treat Australia as if it was doing a five-year plan, for example. I mean, that's the kind of way of thinking that that's underpins my work. How do we look at this the way they look at it? And when we do it like that, how can we use sort of the best Western techniques of, of governance? There was the study of governance, of the study of public policy, of, of political science in my case, to try and understand how this sort of big, messy, complex thing is dealing with a problem in its own way and how it's dealing with a problem in a way that we understand. You know, oh yeah, I deal with climate change like that too, or that's similar to what Canada did or what Britain did. Um, so yeah, there, there are parallels, but sometimes parallels are more, more harm than good as well. So many outsiders looking at China would often make the assumption that what happens in the country is a result of what the central leadership or even Xi Jinping directly orders. Mm. But it's not really as simple as that, is it? It's, it's much more complex and much more interesting, frankly. I mean, for starters, how would Xi Jinping get 90 million people to do the same thing? But also you've got that problem of, of if you're the ruler of China and you put your name to something and you sign on the dotted line what happens if it goes wrong mm. and it doesn't take much to think of ways it can go wrong and there are many many examples of times it has gone wrong you don't want to to risk that um, at the same point you've also got this this classic Leninist system this system from 1949 that you have to use because you can't use anything else um, you, know, you can't change the system of government and then you have to sort of, it's like a magpie. You, know, you have to look around and you pick a little bit from here and a little bit from there and you chuck them all in and you see which bright, shiny things you like. And in that sense, you, are, you have to, each, each leader has their own style of, of, of bricolage, you know, of, of, of mosaic. Um, but with these characteristics that are very different from how we imagine. And one of the big characteristics is you, you don't really give orders because that's risky. Um, you can't really fire people, um, you, for example. Uh, to go back to my Liberal Party th you know, analogy, if someone's a bad public servant, you don't fire them for being a bad public servant. You'd fire them for being a bad Liberal Party member, uh, mm -hmm. which means that in that case you have to get them done for corruption. Um, yeah, with these dual systems, it's hard to fire someone for the right reason, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, it's not just why you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just firing you. You have to also, at the same point, fire them in a way that people get the lessons from how they fire them. And this whole idea of how do you give off a signal so that people take lessons from it is just so complex. And that's what each leader grapples with, in essence. And that's what my work looks at really closely. So with such a complex system, I'm sure you've come across examples where even really good policy has just struggled to make its way through the bureaucracy. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things is when you read these policies, they're often really good. Um, there's can, a do you have any examples? That you can sure. Think? I mean, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of the things that China is doing, are, are, parts of China are doing on carbon markets, for example, are just, you know, they came well actually they came to, to ANU in some places but you know they, they came to different parts of the world and they took models and they brought them back and they're working really really well and right now everyone's like wow the Tianjin carbon market is excellent and then you think how is this going to work somewhere a long way from Beijing in a tiny little area where they're not going to have the same 
conditions and it's not. I mean, so we see a lot of the Chinese government right now is facing huge problems with healthcare, with education, with climate change and environmental matters. And there are success stories, but there are also so many, I just think often think too many because it, it just becomes too much, really horrible stories where the policy on paper is really good, but by the time it gets to the people who are experiencing public services, it's not very good. And, um, and there's no one they can hold to account for that as well. You can't really blame anyone because of this system I was saying before where there's not really a person to blame. Um, uh, you, often what happens is, is they tend to blame their local mayor, to go back to the Australian analogy. You know, I grew up in Wyala, which is like between Alice Springs and Adelaide. Um, you know, I blame the sort of my district of Wyala tiny, you know, sub-jurisdiction guy who puts the bins out. Mm. And I say, oh, you know, but that Malcolm Turnbull fellow, he's all right. I like him. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the thing about what's written down is often very good. And then we look at it and we go, wow, what a, what a great policy. And then you look at what happens on the ground and it's often very bad. And then you, you step backwards and you're like going, well, let's unpick where it goes wrong. Um, and when we're unpicking where it goes wrong, by the way, we also need to remember where it goes right. Mm. I think there can sometimes be this tendency to look at sort of bad China and there's a lot of, of examples of things that don't go right. And then there are also, though, a lot of really sort of quite amazing examples. Yeah, well, I, I did want to talk about some of those examples because I, th- I think China does seem such a country of contradictions. You do have, um, you know, those examples you just mentioned where policy has not made its way down to the local level in any kind of coherence coherent way but then you do also have some really truly impressive reforms that um from an outsider's perspective seem to be implemented in the country at almost lightning speed Mm. um what can explain life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com incredible efficiency at which some policies are rolled out in china i mean that's that's uh, that's the question i've devoted a lot of my life to frankly um it's a very long answer the short answer is that that it's it's the system itself that there are some parts of it that work really well and there are some parts of it that don't work really well and there are some ways of getting things done that work much much better than other ways and so one of the things we've been trying to do on this big long-running project collecting all these these sort of examples and information is find patterns and and patterns that allow us to say this is where it looked good on paper and this is where it worked on the ground and i mean you know this is where they enrolled 800 million people over a longer period and 500 million people in two years in, in, in health insurance, say. And Which is very impressive. I mean, even if you look at the Obamacare system mm, in the US, that's still a... Uh, it's 40 million in, in, say, three or four years. But also you think of how much it cost and you think of all the trouble it caused and, and what a massive influence it is. And then you think of somebody who two years before couldn't walk down to an office and get some money back. And, and now they can. 
at the same point, you have to remember that person walking down the office that gets the money back is still paying more for the doctor than they were last year. A lot of the money they get back might be going in, in higher fees, which is something else we're seeing. And that's because it's a completely different part of the system that gives the order. It's a different part of the system that implements the thing. Again, this is this this contradiction between having people as party members and as government people and, and then as citizens as well. Um, for example, the Liberal Party, to keep that analogy going, it has its own hospitals sometimes. It has its own system of care. These are things that that to us, we don't quite see when we look at China, but when you dig under the surface and you do the interviews and you talk to people, that would be infuriating. But, you know, we, we again, it's that issue of, of, of what's on paper which can be really impressive, but, but how does it then get translated is really hard to, to get your head around, but really important. Do Chinese people have their head around this? It's hard to say because if they did, why would they tell us? I mean, one of the big, motivations for my work is a number of stints in China where I've been with government officials and, and you know there's a great book by an a American anthropologist called James Scott it's called Seeing Like a State and you know how do we see like they see it's just always been a really simple question I mean you open up any newspaper and this whole it's once you can read it and I don't mean just read it, the language, which is a bit of a pain as well, but you know, decode all these different signals. It's like this entire world opening up in front of you. Um, and you can see for them it must be very difficult, but at the same point, because you know, they're so, throwing so many balls in the air, but at the same point it also must be quite frustrating when people come in and say, oh, you know what you need, you need a, you need a market. Yeah. And markets actually, I don't mean to bash markets, markets are very good and often work very well, but then you think about, Again, somebody sitting there going, well, my Liberal Party boss wants this, my government party boss wants this, you're some delegation from Australia that's about to go to the next town tomorrow. Oh, you know, I'll write that down. Um, so many balls in the air at any given time. Um, all, you know, I, just, I think a lot of Chinese people can see that part of the puzzle, but they don't necessarily know where the balls are at any given time or the hands throwing them up or... You know, really butchered that juggling metaphor but <laughs> there's that that question of of who's the juggler yeah and and just the bigger questions of the rules um i will say one other thing though about chinese people knowing it which is so much of my work is spent just reading things that they tell us you know you you've got 90 million people yeah you can't not have them know the rules yeah <laughs> I mean, i'm sure they're a great resource <laughs> they, they really uh, it's not just i mean it's not them it's the books it's the articles it's the, it's the online materials i mean it's in some ways there's never been a, a more exciting time to work on this part of china because we just with the internet you're seeing this explosion of material so even say things that are secret and passed from the top down at some point somebody often puts out a, a newspaper article saying like, and refers to this secret thing. And then you're going, oh, well, secret thing, you know, and, and it's not because they're violating any rules of the system. It's just because they've got to at some point tell people what, what's happening. They've got to tell people what's happening as, as party members, like a liberal party would, you know, you send a newsletter, you send an email, you give them a call, but then they also have to tell them what's happening is in you know, And when you go to your transport job tomorrow, this is what we want the roads to look like. There just must be so many mixed signals. I just, I've always found that very fascinating. So, And do you think there are any lessons that other countries in the region, especially democracies, could learn from policymaking in China? Does, you know, despite all the apparent chaos and complexity of the Chinese bureaucracy, does it have any elements that other countries could think of adopting? 
it has some really interesting elements in terms of because it's it's not simply top down and you have this this system of of sort of in a way hashing it out where the the top leaders say one thing quite vague and then the the level below says something a bit more specific and it goes up down up down and elements such as that require firstly I, i think are good for any political system um Secondly, the fact that a lot of that's done in public is is laudable, and and that's not an authoritarian versus dem- democratic systems. By public, the, you mean in, in the Chinese media? Absolutely, in, yep. in you know in the Chinese language media. Um, there's another part, which is that the Chinese have been very good dealing with other countries in terms of experts coming in. A lot of them speak English. They translate their things into English. They have rolled gold overseas educations. They 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 can really deal well with external experts while at the same point keeping in the back of their mind what do i want to get out of this how do i change this um i don't think that's always a good thing for us as australians necessarily i I think the sort of intellectual father of the center where i work um pierre ickman once once wrote that sort of the chinese and the french are the two civilizations in the world where you have to talk to them in their own language beautifully otherwise they will not take you seriously and you know that's something that we need to think about as australians but for other parts of the region there's there's a huge amount of of sort of ebb and flow of ideas. And that's not a modern thing either, by the way, like, you know, Japan, China, Korea. <laughs> Where does one part start and one part stop within their, all those countries' intellectual history is an incredibly rich area. So, yeah, I think there's, there's some, some lessons for the region in the sense of working with expertise, be that foreign or internal. There's some lessons in terms of, of how you hash out differences using coordination bodies, i.e., when you have to spend your life thinking about what your Liberal Party boss wants, your public service boss wants, you're usually pretty good at, at knowing how to work your way through some quite tight dilemmas um, that other states that don't have that divide don't have to worry about. And there's one other part, sorry, that I forget, which is that a vibrant you know, intellectual sphere. China has educated a lot of people. There are a huge number of... It's educated a lot of people here and in other countries as well. I mean, there are so many talented people that are writing and debating and and somewhat shamefully some of those discussions are silenced by the Chinese government if they don't like them but very few are and they're fascinating you know that's that's this really rich indigenous environment of of ideas and debate and and contestation and I think that in that sense like that's not a lesson for governments to take away but as societies for us to think about like the intellectual arena is, is, I mean, under Xi Jinping, it's, it's taken a step backwards, but you're still talking about an incredibly rich tradition of education, intellectualism. And, and the significance debate. of education. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and capacity of, of bureaucrats. You know, you talk to your average minister in Beijing or your average ministerial aide in Beijing, and, I mean, they are some really impressive people. You get to the top of that system, you are usually particularly the government system, you are very sharp. Um, it's not, obviously it gets harder and harder as you go further and further down towards local government, but it's pretty impressive um, and it's something for us to aspire to. Um, I know it's something that the Singaporeans talk about quite a lot, for example. Uh, it's a big focus of theirs and there's you know, a lot of interplay between those two countries about that sort of relationship between policy making and expertise and intellectual climate and then also frankly political control um so yeah it's, it's a fascinating area mm. uh, one where i think there's going to be a uh, we're going to hear a lot more 
in the future. You know, with China appearing from the outside to be often very efficient at implementing reform, um, could it be the case that China's example is bad news for democracy? You know, you when you look when you compare it to the populism and the gridlock of Western democratic systems and phenomena like Trump and Brexit and globally inaction on climate change. Um, could people look at China's system in contrast and think, well, you know, at least an authoritarian system gets things done and, and at least that they have, you know, rational policymakers? Um, is there a frightening argument to be made that what the world needs is more systems like China's? From one, if you cherry pick one example or another example, sure. But you have to ask simple questions, you know, where would you rather live? What would you rather be in? You know, what about the whole totality of someone's experience? You can grow at 11% per annum, great, and you, you can't drink the water, you know. I'm not, the problem is that there's always a trade-off. And by saying that, by the way, we need to applaud China for grow, you know, for getting people out of poverty. I mean, if you can't eat, it doesn't, you don't really care about much else, right? Like it's so fundamental. But to say that China does some things really well and then extrapolate out from that that it's a good system, I just think is a bridge way too far. Um, it's an inefficient system and they themselves know it. It's a system whereby because there is an accountability, it's hard to hold someone, it's hard to pin someone to the wall and say, why haven't you fixed my hospital? Why haven't you fixed my school? It's a system whereby some things work really well but lots of other things don't. And you know what no one knows, of course, is... is the counterfactual, i.e. if healthcare was really good, would there still be high economic growth? That's the whole point. No one has a say in that in the Chinese system. Um, you don't have that ability to, to sort of make those decisions in a way. And um, I think a lot of people would, would look, you know, a lot of people look at the efficiency of how things are built sometimes or how some things work and other things don't. You've got to take the whole picture as a whole and... Um, yeah, and but also in in that sense, say congratulations and, and 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 applaud the things that work, but you can't miss the things that don't. Um, and it's very easy for us to talk about gridlock and, and things like that, but it's because we know that there's gridlock. Yeah, at least we know. We know. I mean, that that's the point. Like you know, we're not. <laughs> I think it'd be even more frustrating. I grew up in you know, rural area. If you're sitting in some rural area, knowing something's wrong and just feeling powerless to change it, I mean, it can feel hard to change things in other countries, but I don't think it. I think it'd be easier than sort of sitting in in rural Shanxi with another coal mining accident about to happen, going, "What can I do about this?" Not much, you know. When you're sitting in some, no matter where you are, you can have a crack a bit more. I think in a in the more democratic systems and the Australian in me just likes having a crack. <laughs> well, Ryan Manuel, this has been a very interesting conversation. Thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thanks for your time. That was Policy Forum's Nikki Lovegrove in conversation with Dr. Ryan Manuel. If you're interested in Chinese politics and policymaking, keep an eye out for Ryan's new book. It's coming out soon and it's called How to Rule China. Should be a good read. As always, we're really interested in getting your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. I really enjoyed the interview today. What about you? If so, how about leaving us a quick review at iTunes? It should only take 30 seconds or so, and we will love and appreciate you for doing so. 
Don't forget, you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod, but until then, cheerio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.